0: Hey,
3: everyone. Technically, you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy.
4: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson, and it's September 30th. The Boeing 747 debuted on this day in 1968, and it was huge. At the time, it was the world's largest jet. It was so big that Boeing had to build a new factory in Everett, Washington, just to be able to build the thing. It was so big that airports had to redesign their terminals to accommodate the planes themselves and their passengers. The 747 could carry more than twice as many passengers as the Boeing 707, and that made the per-passenger price tag for the airline about half as much as on other aircraft, at least if the flight was completely full. But it also meant that the airports needed more passenger accommodations to go along with it. All those things that support the coming and going of aircraft, from refueling tankers to catering trucks, had to be updated, too. And the pilots had to learn how to fly this gigantic aircraft. The training program involved a model of the cockpit that was on stilts on a truck that moved around so that pilots could simulate what it was like to be so far off the ground during takeoff and landing and taxiing. It took a team of 50,000 people 16 months to design and build the 747. The first flight took place on February 9th of 1969, and the first commercial passenger flight was on January 22nd of 1970. This was a Pan Am flight from New York to London. The first hijacking of a 747 was that same year, on August 3rd of 1970, on a flight from New York City to San Juan when a passenger pulled out a gun and said he wanted to go to Cuba. The plane did go to Cuba. It was met there by Fidel Castro when it landed. The 360 passengers and 19 crew aboard were unharmed, although they did arrive in San Juan after it was all over, about seven hours behind schedule. There are still a lot of 747s in use around the world, although the last flight of a 747 by a United States carrier was on January 3rd, 2018. A lot, but not all, of the 747s still making flights are used for cargo rather than for passengers. Modified 747s have also served as the U.S. presidential aircraft known as Air Force One and as the shuttle carrier aircraft during the space shuttle program. The 747 was originally designed to work as a cargo plane because Boeing really thought that passenger aircraft were going to go the way of supersonic flight, They thought that they needed to future-proof their subsonic aircraft. So they needed to make the 747 to be able to load and unload huge amounts of cargo as a matter of future-proofing. This focus on cargo loading is also why the 747 has a humped design at the top. The cockpit is up above the main deck with a space behind the cockpit that was originally a passenger lounge. But during the fuel crisis of the 1970s, on most flights, it was converted to additional passenger seating. This arrangement of the flight deck up above the main deck with a space behind it was so that the nose of the plane could be on a hinge to be opened up for cargo loading. Some of the 747s no longer in service have been scrapped. Hundreds are in airplane graveyards, and about 50 have been written off after crashes or some kind of other irreparable damage the first one ever assembled still exists, though. It's at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, where it underwent a two-year restoration process that ended in 2014. It had been sitting out there at the museum for quite some time and was in need of a lot of both cosmetic and structural refurbishing. Thanks to Jeff Jeffcoat for her research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison for all of her audio work on this podcast. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can tune in tomorrow for the establishment of a nation.
6: With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See Lisa.com for more details. Welcome to This Day in History class,
3: where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was September 30th, 1207. Persian poet and scholar Jalal al-Din Rumi, better known simply as Rumi, was born in the Persian Empire. Some sources say his birthplace was Balkh in present-day Afghanistan, and others say it was a small town in modern-day Tajikistan. Hagiographical sources have claimed that Rumi's father, Baha al-Din Walad, was descended from the caliph Abu Bakr, but those claims have been rejected. Rumi's father was a religious scholar, itinerant preacher, and Sufi teacher. A Sufi is a Muslim mystic. The early 13th century was a time of great conflict in that part of the world. The Crusades were happening, and the Mongols were also a threat. When Rumi was young, his family moved to Samarkand, possibly because of the Mongols or political instability where they lived. They soon moved farther west, into Anatolia or present-day Turkey. When he was a teenager, he married Gauhar Khatun, with whom he had two children. By 1229, the Sultan of the Saljuks had invited Rumi's father to teach theology in Konya, the capital of the Sultanate of Rum. The Saljuks were a branch of the Oghuz Turks and a dynasty that ruled parts of Central Asia and the Middle East from the 11th to 14th centuries. They established the Seljuk Empire and the Sultanate of Rum. But a couple of years after the family moved to Konya, Rumi's father died. Around 1241, when his father's protege, Borhan al-Din Mohakek, died too, Rumi took over as teacher. He assumed leadership of the disciples, and he became an Islamic jurist. An Islamic jurist, or faqih is a theologian with expertise in Islamic jurisprudence and law. Rumi soon became friends with religious scholar and mystic Shams al-Din Tabrisi, who arrived in Konya in 1244. Shams believed in unpretentious spirituality. It was under the influence of Shams that Rumi turned away from teaching and toward the path of ecstatic— Rumi began writing poetry. But a few years after the two met, Shams disappeared. According to legend, Shams left because Rumi's students were jealous of Shams and resentful of Rumi's new passion. Or they may have even had Shams killed. Whatever the reason for Shams' disappearance, Rumi expressed his feelings of loss and despair in his poetry and dance. Rumi transformed into someone devoted to mystical writing and worship, Much of his work at this time was expressed through the voice of Shams. But it did not take long for him to find his own voice and begin writing his most memorable works, like Masnavi or Spiritual Verses, a six-volume poem containing fables, tales, and reflections that illustrate the Sufi doctrine. He was inspired to write the work by another mystic he was close to, Husam al-Din Chalebi. Throughout the last several years of his life, Rumi dictated the poem to Hassam, who wrote it in Persian. The poem is widely read in the Muslim world. People have compared it to the Quran and recognized its religious and literary significance. Rumi also wrote the works of Shams Tabriz, a collection of mystical poems. Generally, Rumi's poetry focuses on the idea that God is absolute ecstatic love, and he questioned orthodoxy. Many of the poems were composed to be sung at Sufi gatherings. After his poems were translated, people in the West associated him with a tolerant Islamic spirituality and related to his focus on a direct connection with God. As far as his prose goes, his sermons, letters, and lectures have been recorded. Rumi died in Konya in 1273. His followers founded the Mevlevi Order, a Sufi order, years after his death. The order is also known as the whirling dervishes because they practiced whirling as a form of thicker or devotion as a means of attaining ecstatic experience. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you feel like correcting my pronunciation or my accent on anything that I've said in the show, feel free to leave a very kind comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, at T-D-I-H-C podcast. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
0: Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or,
0: Shoot that! Shoot that.